Hey friends, and welcome to the Tinnitus Manifesto podcast, where we discuss all things related to musicians and hearing. My name is Chris Clausen. In today's podcast, me and my co-host, Nashville audiologist, Dr. Rebecca Grome, have a conversation with a true gentleman and a highly skilled Argentinian salsa dancer, who also happens to be a producer of dozens of hit records over the last 40 years, Mr. Peter Collins. Speaking for myself as a musician-songwriter who's interested in sound and hearing, it was fascinating to be a part of a conversation between a world-renowned music producer and an audiologist in one of the most musical cities in the world. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, and without further ado, the Tinnitus Manifesto podcast with our guest, producer Peter Collins. Uh, I have a little question for you, a little quiz. Okay. What do Rush, Bon Jovi, Alice Cooper, the Indigo Girls, Queensryche, Nick Kershaw, oh, so many others I can't even think, uh, Musical Youth, uh, Pass the Ducci? What connects all those things together? I think they all have a lot of hair, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And they all have the same producer, our guest today, (laughs) Mr. Big. Mr. Peter Collins. How are you, Peter? I'm doing good. Thanks, Chris. Good to be on your show. Uh, I've known Peter for a long time. One of the great things about living in Nashville, and I'm sure you know all all three of us know this, is it's just uh, so many amazing, talented artists just live around your corner, and you run into them on a regular basis. And it's a uh, it's I, I still get giddy sometimes. It's funny. Again, Peter, there's so many albums that you were connected to that uh that were a part of my life a part of my growing up you know and there's so many memories i have connected to the stuff that you've produced uh and for for starters i just want to thank you for that i'm very grateful to have you be an influence in my life even before i met you which was so cool again he starts coming to my yoga class that's how we met and it just my my teenage self was such a nerd you know when i when i (laughs) When I met Peter and I just, wow, it's so cool. I was in awe of, of meeting these heroes. It's, uh, so for starters, Peter, what brought you to Nashville? Uh, well, actually, it was the Indigo Girls. I was living in uh, Mississippi for my sins with my former wife. And um, I was totally miserable in Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> and the Indigo Girls wanted to record in Nashville. And at that point, I was recording all over the world. And right because I couldn't record in Mississippi, so. Um, yeah, the one you had to leave Mississippi in order to record anywhere, I imagine. It, yes. Right. <laughs> uh, but the one great thing about Mississippi, it's a wonderful place to leave. Okay, there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> we just lost so, all of our followers. Yeah, I know. We lost Mississippi. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway. So yeah, I, Nashville. Yeah, so they in two thousand, sorry, in uh, nineteen ninety four, they wanted to record in Nashville. We'd done a previous record in uh, New York, in uh, upstate New York, at Wood, uh, Woodstock, at the Bearsville Studios. That was their first uh, album, right? Was that their the... That's the first album I did with them called Rites of Passage? Right, <laughs> great album. Uh, yeah, so thank cool. you. Yeah, and, and then uh, we did an album called Swampophilia in Nashville. And I fell in love with Nashville when we moved here. 
Great city. Uh, sorry, when we, we worked here at Woodland Studios, and uh, I love the studio. It's a sort of old school studio. They had Liberace's piano there in the studio, and just uh, the room just sounded great. And we had, uh, I was doing a record with Nancy Griffith there after the yeah. Indigo Girl. And uh, we wanted a, she wanted one of the crickets to come in to play uh, an I Fought the Law style guitar part. The, the guy that had actually written I Fought the Law, Sonny <laughs> Curtis. Wow. So, so Sonny comes in and he brings own, an acoustic guitar and I, you know, sort of have memories of uh, The Clash doing I Fought the Law and I thought it should be electric guitar. Right. So um, I, the word got put out that we were looking for an electric guitar for Sonny Curtis. And within an hour, we had like a 1957 uh, Strat show up free of charge for Sonny it to walked play. In, it just walked yeah. in the studio. Yeah. And it was, I thought, this is my town, you know. It's yeah, just right. <laughs> <laughs> that is the epitome of Nashville, I feel like. You just yeah. ask and you shall receive. <laughs> Right. It was uh, it was wonderful. So that's uh, so I told my former wife that we, if we lived in Nashville, at least I could work in this town. We could all be together as a family. So she agreed to do that. So we moved to Nashville in '94. Okay. Now I moved in '95, so I was a year behind you. We're going to get to. So of course, this this is the Tinnitus Manifesto podcast. We're talking about sound and hearing, and that's sort of the the primary goal here. When you mentioned uh just going into the room into the indigo girls and in, and the studio that you were in that had liberace's piano in it and you said it was just a great room what are the characteristics that you look for in in a studio and what do you like orally speaking sound sound wise what are the characteristics you're looking for in a studio it depends on the project for example when i did the first queensryche record um Mind Crime, Operation Mind Crime. Remember that? I'd not, I was looking for a studio where we could get a big live drum sound. So I checked out a bunch of places and found uh, a Derringer factory in outside of Philadelphia, a big untreated space. And uh, was, the studio is called KGM Victory, but it was in an old Derringer factory and there'd been no acoustic treatment. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I could tell that the room was going to sound really big with a, a drum kit in there. And this was back in the 80s. Right. And um, I got the band to travel all the way from Seattle to Philadelphia in a you know, beaten up old van to just, again, just work in the studio. Yeah. So um, that was that. But in, uh, for example, in Nashville, Woodland, it was a completely different thing. The studio was had a lot of wood at the control the uh studio area the recording area had a lot of wood in it right. and for example if you just did a single hand clap in that room and you recorded it it sounded incredibly full and satisfying you didn't feel like you needed more you know a bunch of people to be clapping their hands to make it sound good just yeah. the one hand clap would sound good in that room for some reason everything just was sweet sounding in that room. So, uh, you know, you wouldn't use that room to get try and get a massive ambient drum sound. Right. But uh, so it, it really depended on the project. And for acoustic 
singer-songwriter artist, that studio Woodland was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a pure sound. Pure, uh, but it just recorded nicely. It didn't feel like you needed to do much to it. You didn't have to put a lot of equalization or reverb on it. it just the natural sound of the room was beautiful. So that's generally a lot of times your goal as a producer is to try to find the ways to get a sound without having to do it uh, through manipulation, right? So Correct. Get, and it just saves you trouble. It's it's a more natural approach well, to the sound. In, in my later years, that became the issue. When I was working in England in the early 80s, it was all about high tech and using I mean, as much equipment and toys as you possibly could. That was the whole thing. Yeah. So I had a whole arsenal of equipment, fair lights and some claviers and all the, the latest sampling stuff and crazy reverbs and right. keyboards. <laughs> that was the 80s. And so, you know, unfortunately, when I listen back to some of my productions from the 80s, they're very, they sound very dated. Yeah. Because, because of that. Right. And I actually took a lot of heat uh, when I produced Rush for the first time, because they they were looking for that kind of thing. They came to England to work with me. And power I, windows, the power windows. Power windows, windows yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, of course, I used a lot of that stuff on power windows, and the Rush purists didn't like it at all. Uh huh. <laughs> it was I. It was a uh, it was a departure. I do remember. I mean, I loved it, and it's funny because you know this is. This is when I grew up. I grew up in the 80s and and for better, for worse, right? As far as yeah. uh, how things sound. And yes, it's absolutely true. I think you're right. Uh, I know you're right. Uh, that they they just loved using every possible effect and all yeah. the modern modern technology of the time. Uh, but I do remember Power Windows. Yes, it was a different sound, but we love, you know, me and my friends love that album. We, you know, that's it, just. I know the, the the diehard Rush fans, but I think over time they've they've adjusted to it. So, um, right. Uh, I think, and and also, um, hold your fire. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't quite as over the top as Power Windows with the effects and stuff, but uh, Hold Your Fire had such great songs on it as right. Yeah. As did Power mm-hmm. Windows. Yeah. A funny story about uh, hold. Uh, hold your fire on. There's an album, there's a song on there called Time Stands Still. I know it. And we, and we had Amy Mann uh, come in to do backing, uh, to do a vocal with the lead singer Getty. Really? And I remember asking her, um, I said, Amy, could you sing it with a little bit more attitude? And she comes back and says, Well, what kind of attitude? <laughs> <laughs> be careful what you ask for there yeah. <laughs> okay well uh dr grome rebecca do you have any questions for peter like this is the other thing i want to uh, i'm out of my sort of wheelhouse when it comes to the the tech when it comes to sound and audio and i'm wondering if there are any uh any conversations that the audiologist and the producer can have do you have any questions rebecca for peter or peter for Rebecca about sound or hearing. No, honestly, I mean, this is yeah. the whole point is to open the dialogue here. So if you, yeah. uh, this is a chance to ask those questions you've always wondered about uh, when yeah. it comes to each other's jobs. Oh, I have a lot of questions. You want me to fire away or do you want yeah, to fire, fire, away. fire away? Okay, so my first question, of course, is tell me about um, your hearing journey. So you know, people in the music industry just have an excessive amount of noise exposure, but it's also 
your tool that you need and use to get through your everyday. So can you give a brief rundown of kind of what your hearing journey has looked like over time? Because as Chris has told me, you do wear hearing aids, correct? And I'm sure correct. that was a uh, transition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me about when did you first start noticing any sort of change? And um, and then I would love to hear how that affected your day to day, especially when you're producing and recording and um, how that changed your mindset when you're looking at equipment. So, um, well, actually, when I when I was in the studio, I mean, the last record I did was in 2019 with Stray Cats. When I'm in the studio, my hearing loss was not an issue at all. Yeah, because I just turn the volume up and it's always usually quite loud. And um, you know, you, you're talking to artists either in a control room, which is uh, acoustically very well treated to be able to hear mm -hmm. super clearly everything. So it was never an issue in my recording life. But mm -hmm. in my personal life, when I sort of had somebody in the kitchen, the house, and I was wandering around and I was talking and I was trying to hear what they were saying. I said, could you say that again? You know, I, and I found myself saying that a lot. It sounded like they were mumbling to me and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like they weren't as it turned out you know and i accused them of mumbling so i'm not mumbling so mm -hmm. i realized <laughs> uh, probably in the last seven or eight years i've noticed that particular yeah. ex had that experience i knew uh, my hearing was not what it needed to be and of course mm -hmm. i put off getting hearing aids because i didn't want people to see me having hearing aids and so it was very you know i thought that I, I'm just very self-conscious about the idea of hearing aids being visible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So and I kept I... putting it off. And then eventually, you know, I, I had several conversations with Chris about it. And uh, he, he showed me, he, you know, when we had lunch and he'd take his hearing aids out and show me how they worked and explained, you know, how effective they were. And I, you could barely see them on Chris. You know, had to sort of look for them. And... Um, so eventually, I, I made the decision this year, early this year, okay, I'm going for it. And uh, I tried out several different types. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tried the um, the ones that you put in. I can't remember the name of them now. You put them in and you you replace them every few months. They, they stay in. I tried those and I didn't like them because when I put them in, and I lay in bed, I could hear my heart thumping through. <laughs> so yep. that, that was absolutely no good. And then right. I tried some other ones that uh, didn't have the over the, 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 they didn't have that little tube or anything. They just went in the ear and you could take right. them out. And I didn't like, they were kind of uncomfortable. Uh, and so in the end, I ended up with the, um, with the ones that have got the, the tube and they go in the ear and they're, virtually invisible and they're comfortable they um they're fabulous with the the bluetooth um and i i think they're just brilliant and they they charge up easily and very mm -hmm. reliable mm -hmm. so. so it sounds like you had to try a few different options before you found something that was a good fit not only from a sound quality standpoint but from a physical fit scenario correct yeah do you wear your hearing aids um personally only and then you remove them when you're working professionally or have you found a good mix of that um i'm retired now there's oh. an expression there's an expression in nashville he's retired he just don't know it <laughs> <laughs> yes yes 
Yeah, so, so what, I, I have a lot of patients that come in, musicians especially, they kind of the same thing. They don't really notice their hearing loss when it comes to a music standpoint. They start noticing it from a personal standpoint. And so I have always told patients that, you know, we're looking at two different categories of your life here. One of them is music and one of them is your profession. And the other one is your communication with other people. And sometimes those two things don't align in one product. So we have to tackle one thing at a time. Did you kind of have that experience as well? Or did you find once you found a good fit, you know, everything is sounding good? Uh, yeah, the last thing you said. Good. <laughs> yes, uh, I, in the studio, as, as I said, I didn't have any any issue at all with my hearing. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the same thing uh, in performing for me. Like I've been wearing, you know, of multiple different hearing aids over the course of the last 22 years now. And for the majority of that time, I was still playing, you know, playing live. And I wouldn't, I would just, when I walked into the bar, when I walked into the club, I'd take the hearing aids out, you know, and that was, and I'd play the gig without them. And mm -hmm. sometimes I'd have uh, protection in there while I was playing even, but similar thing. Like it didn't really, uh, musically speaking, it was already so bloody loud. Uh, yeah, that there wasn't that yeah. uh, I could keep up, you know, it, it did get to a point, my issue, uh, and I've talked about this, and we'll, we'll, in fact, I'll hold that thought, well, let's continue a little bit more with Peter, I actually have a question for you, as far as um, you, you have mentioned to me that you know, some engineers, and I don't, and we don't have to say names or anything, but you know, some engineers who uh, have, who, who have gotten hearing aids or hearing devices and they use them in the studio and they're thrilled by them. They love it. Right. Yeah. I remember you telling me about a per, one of an engineer friend of yours. Is that correct? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is correct. I honestly can't remember who it is either. But, okay. Uh, yeah. That, that was uh, quite a revelation for me and also yeah. took some of the, uh, um, the negativity out of ha having hearing aids out, out of the picture for me. Right. And I've always does. been uh, particularly talking to you. I've always been sort of, I, I need to do this. I need to do it, but I just kept putting it off. <laughs> well, that seems so to that, be, the, that's a trend. I think. Yeah. The well, average that's... wait time, the average wait time is seven to 10 years from the time that you think that you have hearing loss until the time you actually pursue treatment. The average, the average wait time is seven years. Well, you, wow. uh, you're right on the money there, Rebecca. Yeah. For yeah. Me. Well, you're very average then in that category. I'm so average. <laughs> <laughs> It feels so good. <laughs> it's so nice to be normal. Yes. Yes. So the engineering <laughs> thing is interesting. Um, yeah, that's a big challenge. I, I have one patient in mind I'm thinking of, and um, it's it's always the same conversation as um, people in the music industry, especially like engineers, producers, they're so scared to understand or get the information of the severity of the loss. They're yes. scared to come into the office and have that conversation. And they're scared that if anyone else in their studio or in their professional life finds out about it, that they um, aren't going to get the jobs that they would otherwise get. Did you feel that same way? I, felt, I absolutely did. Yes, I was scared. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I kept that I kept putting it off. Mm -hmm. right. So if you could really look back and really think about what was scary about that, can you think of 
what it was, what no, were you admitting, really scared of? Uh, it was an admission that I'm old and things are going mm-hmm. wrong in the, in my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, we're in the music business. We're eternally young, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we think. Right. Most of you act that way too, so it's all right. Exactly. <laughs> It's a license to be foolish. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would you say, um, so for a younger person who is noticing ringing in their ears and potentially hearing loss, what would be your piece of advice on that? Knowing and going through the whole process later and being on the other side of it and being satisfied, what would be some advice that you would give to those younger producers and engineers who might be starting to notice some issues? I, I would highly recommend them just go and take a visit to an audiologist. It's not going to hurt them. They can always just ignore it, or it could be a very useful meeting for them. Uh, yeah. Self-education, and it'll take some of the, the uh, mystique and the fear out of it. Yeah. I always tell musicians when they come in, and I'm I'm pretty picky. Uh, I pick at people about getting a hearing test when they're in for me, like impressions or wax removal, anything like that. And I always give them an out. I say, hey, I just want a baseline on your file. That way, if anything changes in the future, I know how to treat you. Um, I don't have to go over the results with you. I don't have to tell you. I can just keep them on file and it can just be there and you don't even have to think about it. But at least we have some sort of documentation of a baseline. That way, when you get your new custom in-ears or you're using hearing protection, we know if they're working. Because you're spending all this money on a new product. And if we don't have a baseline hearing test and an annual, I don't know if it's working. So you don't have anything to compare it to. That's Correct. You, know, you need that yeah. a comparison. That baseline. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's nothing to lose by doing that. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking last It is last like pulling week. teeth. <laughs> yeah, we were talking last week about that. And just uh and and again, I think you can probably commiserate with this a little bit, Peter. Uh Rebecca was telling me last week I was interviewing her about you know just her experience as an audiologist and she was talking about how and we and we got into how management and labels are having her go sometimes to studios or to rehearsal halls and meet up with the musicians and I thought my God when like the idea that, yeah, uh, that management that. or a label would give that much of a shit about their work about their, yeah, their musicians that's i thought that's, that's progress it's very cool I yeah think it's, it's great a, it's yeah. so nice to see that happen. in my world of production growing up you know coming evolving through my my journey of production that would never have come into it well yeah. Yeah, what do you think? I mean, would they have perceived it as a negative to have that? Or, I mean, again, was it yes, because of the stigma that, and stuff? Yeah, the old, the old school guys would definitely see that as a negative. Right, mm-hmm. right. It is always a song and dance, that's for sure. I mean, um, I have been really, again, pushy and picking at people about it because I see both sides. I see those who are beginning or maybe five to 10 years in their career and they are so undereducated about safe listening levels and hearing protection and um, just sound um, from a human, like um, like a medical standpoint, they just are very undereducated. Or on the other hand, they've gone through a program and they've gotten a degree and they have just been fear-mongered for four years that if you don't do this, you're gonna lose your hearing and you're never gonna be able to do your job again. 
And I think both of those spectrums are terrifying to me as a right. as an audiologist. So on one hand, I want people to be educated and I want people to understand the importance and the basics of hearing health. But on the other hand, it's not a scare tactic. It's a piece of education that you can use in your career to make educated decisions about your noise exposure and your listening. So it's one of those things I always struggle with it because I, I don't want to come across as like, oh, if you don't do this, you're, you're at risk. Mm -hmm. But it's so important to me. It's like, you know, how do I bring that to the music industry without being picky and pushy about it? I think that's, that's wonderful. And hopefully, you know, the new uh, crop of musicians that, you know, would have uh, a more sensible attitude towards that, more realistic. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my day, you were old at 30. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, and again, that's that's an interesting perspective too, just in general, as far as yeah. this thing that we know of as, as rock, pop, music. Uh, 20 years is a long time, no matter how long you've been alive. You know, so like yeah. you, like you said, if you're 30 years old, you know, yeah, like don't trust anybody over 30. Was it was a thing at some point? Yeah. But, uh, my, in England, where I, I had my initial success, uh, it was an incredibly ageist industry that I was in, and really, uh, you know, at 30 you were getting really old, and by 33 you're pretty much done for. Yeah. But fortunately, when I came to America, it wasn't anywhere near as bad on the ageist. Oh but really? Thank goodness. Yeah. So it was, it was different in in England compared very to the different. United States. Yeah. Very different. It was you know you were burnt out. You were finished at a very early age, oh. and uh, you know I, I think I was in my early well mid thirties when I moved to America, and thank goodness I did because had I stayed in England, I would have definitely been over as That's a producer. I'd been, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, and too, again, that was just that time, that era, maybe. Or, yes. Right. That's very interesting because I just feel like of all like the the British people that I listen to, they're all your generation. They're just, wow. they're, they're they have, I mean, they're like great. <laughs> well, like the original been, rockers. Well, they should oh, dug up for a documentary or something. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like a lot of the, you know, the yeah. kids, I thought it was, and again, I was in the 80s. And uh, of course, I listen, listen to a lot of 80s music, but I love the 70s and 60s music, Beatles and mm -hmm. Zeppelin. And I don't think that's really changed for the average 13, 14 year old now. I think, you know, maybe they hear it from their parents or they just hear a lot of those old songs being on, on TV shows now, a lot of those that that music. Uh, and I don't think I, I do believe that that young the, the kids today, the kids today, the young the teenagers. <laughs> the teenagers of now still have a deep respect they uh, there are a lot of them who really enjoy uh that music they see the value in led zeppelin yes. and deep purple and whatever it is those those bands from the 70s and uh i don't think those those bands will ever go away they are sort of the epitome of of a certain they're the bed, bedrock actually if... absolutely yeah well i i feel like social media plays such a big part in that you know when um I was looking at your your albums that you've produced and I was just giggling at, um, you know, so I was born in the 80s. My parents are turning 70 this year. And when I was growing up, I had my dad's albums or vinyls 
And then I had Columbia House, you know, where you stick the little sticker, you lick the sticker and you send it in and they send you like 20 CDs in the yeah, mail. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's not like I had music on demand really at that point. But then I was in college and like, what was it? Napster? Was that the one that came out where everyone got in trouble for copyright ones. stuff? Right. Yeah. And then so it was it was challenging to get music. And now I feel like, you know, I can pull up on my phone and start a playlist based on a band. And next thing you know, all of these other similar songs are popping up. And right. therefore I listen to them and I like that. And then, you know, so it just snowballs. I think there's because of the so much more access to music, um, you know, stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s, they're never gonna go away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank goodness uh, from a uh, producer's royalties point of view. Uh, right. Well, and I think you're safe. Yeah. Well, here's a. Uh, like, I just happen to be watching. So you, uh, musical, musical youth. You did that song, past, past the duchy, where you were producing. Past the duchy. Yeah. Past it. Okay. See, I can't even pronounce it correctly. It was the, uh, originally. It was the original song was called "Past the Coochie." Past the Coochie. Which is weed, obviously. Right. And yeah. uh, <laughs> the, the the band were. Uh, from Birmingham in England, the eldest was 16 years old. The youngest, who did the singing, was nine years old, oh, and he was well. already a, he was already a raster at nine. <laughs> and uh, you know, so they changed it to past the Dutchy. Dutchy was a a cooking pot, like a Dutch oven. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, you know that that is something I never <laughs> knew. That is a great piece of trivia. And and yeah. the reason I bring that particular song up is because. I just happened to finally watch the last season or the most recent season of Stranger Things on Netflix. Oh yeah. Stranger Things. And that song is in the show several times. Good. And, I, and it's just hilarious because I and again it will we'll be getting into future episodes. We'll be talking about what what they call earworms, right? Those those songs that just stick in your head it's and never go away. Uh that is definitely that falls under that category. I had that song in my head for days after watching uh the episode um mm -hmm. and it's it's actually a very it's not entirely unpleasant it's a it's a it's a it's an optimistic sounding song you know oh yeah uh and it's cute it's it's kind of got its own strange charm to it uh but it's just funny so so if that is being played on stranger things are you getting some connection are you are you getting something from that from credit do you uh, get credit from tv from um downloads and uh, streaming okay. my royalties are infinitesimal i mean right it, it all mounts up but it, it's really compared to the old days it's not nothing really right right but so somehow uh physical pieces of um either vinyl or cassettes or something are still selling because i'm getting <laughs> royalties from analog stuff or you know cds i'm still actually getting royalties from that stuff oh very nice. cool yeah i try I to buy vinyl that. still uh, you know if i see a vinyl sitting around i'm gonna buy it so <laughs> that's good now there's obviously been a big resurgence of it maybe that's source yeah. of some of my royalties now so there you go yeah well, they, they, the increase in vinyl sales uh there are actually more vinyl being sold now than ever in history like it's Is actually right? more vinyl wow. I mean, like the the amount of actual vinyl records being sold now is more than any other time, even in the 70s when all they had was vinyl. 
That's that's very good to hear because I, I love listening to vinyl. I've, I've been trying to update my CD collection to vinyl and some of it's just not, it was never, you know, um, pressed onto vinyl. On vinyl. Yeah. It's just, right, right. Like the, the Indigo Girls stuff, the, the, the latest stuff that I did, just, they just never bothered with vinyl. It's such a shame. Are they, I mean, it's still an option, right? That's the thing too. Again, back to what Rebecca was saying, she tries to buy vinyl. Like if you, uh, if they wanted to make a little extra cash, I bet the Indigo Girls, if they yes. decided to put vinyl out, they would sell it. That's true. I don't yeah. think anybody ever really thought about it. So I, I contacted Emily to ask if one of the albums was on vinyl and she said, no, we never did it. Yeah. I'm trying on. to think. Yeah, like I just went to a concert for New Year's. It was Goose. Um, they're, you know, think of Grateful Dead. People started following Fish, and now Fish people are following Goose. And we went to their New Year's New Year's Eve show. And I don't know exactly how I got. I think it was on social media. I got spammed with they were going to release the live version on vinyl only. And so, I mean, of course, I'm going to buy that. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Take, take my money. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, that was that was money well spent in my book. Yeah. As long was, as they don't deliver it in July when it's a thousand degrees out, I'm, I'm OK. Like, just, record, you just yeah. hold that shipment until December. I'm OK with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's rather like chocolate. You don't want that chocolate delivered in the summer. Yeah. yeah. Chocolate, <laughs> wine and vinyl. Please do not deliver it to me in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Peter, speaking about vinyl compared to digital and this kind of stuff, you, again, so you've been in the recording industry long enough as a producer to see so many drastic changes in technology, right? You went from, yeah, uh, you know, eight in, uh, from, from, you know, inch, inch tape or whatever to all the way to digital. What have you, like, yeah. what have you not given up from this from the earlier years that you carry over to now in recording um well you know when digital came in it was very very exciting we all wanted we wanted in the studio we wanted digital multi-track recorders because we you know the, the most we could get right. yeah, yeah the most we could get on a uh on an analog tape record was 24 tr tracks and we could sync up two 24-track analog machines to get create 48-track, but the synchronization was not so great and right. problems with it. And then you always have to have two reels to take two machines, had to be the same machines lined up properly, synced and all, all the rest of it. So when the uh, the Mitsubishi 32-track came out, which that we had at Woodland, and um, we didn't really think about the warmth factor and what we were missing from analog. It was just, we got all these tracks to record with. Right. Um, and it was only in the, you know, after uh, some time that you realized that the digital sound, when you listen, it was not as inviting as uh, analog. In fact, when you listen to analog vinyl, it invites you in a lot more yeah. into the music. And uh, whereas the digital sound uh, for me is, um, it's kind of glossy, shiny. Uh, it doesn't have the space in it, typically, that, that vinyl has. And, of course, I don't mind some cracks and pop on sur surface noise. But I find it endearing these days. It's charming back in, in its own way, yeah. Charming, mm -hmm. Back in the day, you know, when it was only vinyl, you tried to eradicate that as much as possible. Right. Uh, but now, I, 
you know, I, I almost welcome it. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's, it's a fond memory in a strange way, right? It, yeah. It, it, it appeals to that, uh, that person that you were when you were listening. It does. Right. So, so much these at this point in my life, I'm 72, things that remind me of my youth and my past are, are very dear to me. Yeah. Um, so I have a question again for both of you guys. When you just, this is this is the eternal mystery in my head, uh, and or I can hear it, but I wouldn't know how to describe it. Is uh, frequency-wise, technically speaking, physically speaking, what do you think it is that makes vinyl sound the way it does? What why does it? What are the uh, vibratory reasons for it to sound inviting compared to digital and i'm asking both of you guys that question from your own sort of experience. you go first rebecca well that whole last bit of conversation about analog versus digital of course you know i'm thinking hearing aids and i'm thinking um you know treatment methods and specifically musicians are very challenging to fit with hearing aids because they love things to be warm and um, they like that full spectrum sound. They like a large frequency range. They like a large dynamic range. And a lot of times you don't get that with hearing aids. Um, so it's very interesting because when I think of like digital and hearing aids, I think of um, tinniness and um, a thin sound quality. And most of my patients who come in, specifically those with noise exposure, have just high frequency hearing loss. And so we're getting this e, this high frequency EQ between roughly 1,004, maybe 5,000 hertz. And we're not adding that bass range in. So a lot of musicians, when they come in, they're constantly saying, you know, I don't I don't have this full spectrum sound and I don't, you know, it's not as warm as I would want it to be. And I can hear the adaptive features in the background moving and changing. And so one of the first tricks I do, yep. oh yeah, yep. Chris, I know I'm yep. looking right at you. Yeah. One of the first tricks I do is switch them over to a linear sound quality. So in hearing aids, we had the same same thing. When digital processing came out, we went from analog hearing aids to digital hearing aids. And so we could get all sorts of technical on that, but essentially, instead of having one adjustment to the overall sound, now we have three. We have soft gain, mid gain, high high gain, and it's being adjusted differently. And so for musicians, a lot of times, they don't like that digital sound quality. They don't like those adaptive features running because it doesn't sound like in their head they remember things sounding yeah so it's not only an eq thing but it's a digital it's a digital processing thing when i switch over to linear or analog you're right you immediately get an unfiltered unprocessed true true sound true volume in there and so you know this conversation in my head is 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 on a totally different uh planet i guess than than what you guys are referring to but the concepts are the same. So, you know, analog in itself, uh, from the basics of it, um, it's just a less processed signal. Like you said, you didn't have a lot of access to, you were limited in what you could change. You were limited in how many different stimuli you could throw in there. Whereas digital, 
your current hearing aids are processing more than what the first space shuttle did on a smaller chip and with less battery power. So it's just a digital filtered edited sound. So yeah, there's my rant about that one, but yeah, it's just totally different sound qualities. In your opinion, Peter, same question. Like what do you, uh, uh, and, and, and from your technical expertise, what, how well, would you describe those differences? Um, well, Rebecca's done it perfect. I, I wouldn't want to say anything about that. She, she just nailed it. But okay. uh, I will say that with my new hearing aids, when I'm listening to uh, my vinyl, I don't find myself wanting to take the hearing aids out. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, you know, I still enjoy qualities of vinyl with my hearing aids in, but I just think they're exceptionally good. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and then you, you probably got a good fit too. So, um, yeah. you know, we can, Chris and I, I mean, gosh, how many different hearing aids have we had you in now? A handful. And, um, you know, we're constantly talking about, he, we joke a lot about our language, we speak different languages, um, an audiologist and a musician speak different languages. And so a lot of times he's coming in and saying one thing and I have to figure out if what I'm saying matches up, are we talking the same language? Mm -hmm. And then he's thinking of sound in one way and I'm thinking of sound acoustically in your ear in a two CC coupler. So, um, you know, the language of um, what we're looking for versus expectations and trusting that changing a very small vent on a dome is going to make a huge difference. And um, so that's great that you don't, feel the need to take your hearing aids out. That is ultimately the end goal um, is to get you fit for both communication and music enjoyment. Um, but usually for most people, those two things don't align. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really challenging. So it's great that you don't feel like ripping those out or making an adjustment on your phone when you listen to music. That's no, awesome. that hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Chris, what do you think about that? Because man, we've we've uh, we've gone back and forth about a lot of things uh, from a technology standpoint. Yeah, I would say uh, back to the baseline thing where the brain adjusts, right? And that I think that's such a huge factor in my experience going through all these uh, different hearing approaches from you know the different hearing aids. Of course, there's that adjustment. There's a an adaptation that has to happen. Um, and that, I, I think a lot of it is neurological more than, you know, it's just getting accustomed, letting your brain get accustomed to the, the new, this different way of hearing the new frequencies that are coming in. It just has to kind of reconcile all that stuff. And I, I think the brain does more of the work than we ever think it does, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that I often think about this, the quality of hearing aids that I've had has gone through such a variety, but the adjustment has always been pretty much the same, right? It sounds high and tinny and kind of crappy when I first wear it, almost to the point where I have to turn it down or I take it out and it gets annoying, but then I get used to it and then I rely on it. And then it's, you know, I can't imagine it any other way. And then years go by, I try a new setup and it's the whole new whole thing again. Let's right? start so, all over. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And it just seems, I really do think there's a, just a, a the, the neurology is what, what does it, the brain bends towards what it wants to, what it wants yeah. to hear, you yeah. know? Uh, 
And this is where I think it's interesting, you know, and this is where the world right now, everyone has hearing aid, has essentially hearing crap, you know, has shit in their ears, right? Everyone, oh, yeah. everyone you see walking their dog, everyone you see doing us on our jobs, whatever it is, people are listening to stuff all the time now. And we all manage to adjust to those sounds, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's in ear pod or, you know, AirPod or these kinds of speakers or a hearing aid, right? Your brain knows what it's receiving and it adjusts accordingly. It accepts where you are and works from there. And I think, you know, that's the beauty of all of this. That's what I think is great. You know, using any kind of hearing device, we humans are good at adapting. And that's, that's what I think is so valuable in general mm -hmm. uh, about oh, one of the the great things about sound in general and, and how we hear, we do adapt, we do adapt. And it's the same thing. You said it takes seven to 10 years for someone to get, to go in, to notice their problem essentially, right? So mm -hmm. obviously it takes that long to start noticing it. If you, if you change it quickly, then it's going to be a very drastic thing, but it, we are, your brain is adjusted for those seven to 10 years. Of course, it's going to adjust again later when you get something. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was saying earlier, one of the triggers was, uh, you know, when I'd be in my kitchen and somebody sounded like they were mumbling, but the final nail in the coffin, I'm a salsa dancer these days, and people would get in my ear and yell what they were trying to say, and I still could not hear them. That, yeah. was, it. that was the final trigger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's such a fun activity. That it is. Such a great activity. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Peter yeah. is uh, a highly skilled Argentinian tango dancer. Also, yeah, but I, salsa, I'm salsa. Sorry. I'm a higher, a higher level salsa dancer. Tango is incredibly difficult. Salsa, sorry. <laughs> no, I do. I do both, but I would okay. say I'm more advanced in salsa than I am tango. Okay. So, so we can we... talk rhythmically. Let's just uh, is uh, do you. Do you enjoy the rhythms of salsa? Is that part I of I love it. I love it. You know, it's uh, there's two basic styles of salsa uh, where you're dancing on one, which is uh, easier because finding the downbeats much easier than dancing on two, where um, you know the, the second beat of the bar is very important. Right. And dancing on two, and they dance almost exclusively on two in New York, for example. Whereas Los Angeles was known as an on one town. Wow. <laughs> New York is on two. Yeah. So uh, it's been interesting rhythmically to, to learn how to dance on both. On two is uh, often called mambo style salsa. Mambo. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, it, it's a bit, for me, it's a bit groovier because you're, it, it's not, um, you, you can delay delay the, your body in the in the beat yeah, so, not, oh, so you're sitting back a little bit you're, you're sitting, sitting a little back on it a little bit yeah yeah cool yeah and again that's the dynamic you know any good drummer should know how to do that right exactly. to, to control where they sit in the time yes create a certain feel right same yeah. thing yep okay well i'm going to geek out peter a little bit uh a couple things one can you tell me just one neat story about Neil Peart, about the drummer, Rush drummer? Um, well, 
he was um, always would, before coming into the studio, he would always cycle at least, you know, power cycle at least eight miles, which doesn't sound very much for a cycle, but he would be really, you know, really going for it. Yeah. And he'd come in the studio and he'd always want to be precise. If it was a noon start, he wanted everybody to be ready at noon, you know, not a second later. He was just ready to go. He was so precise. Um, I mean, he was just a, a remarkable, I can't think of any specific stories about Neil that uh, come, come to mind. Okay. Sorry well, about that. Any one of them. What about Getty? I mean, uh, uh, I spent a fair amount of time learning some of his parts when I was growing up in the 80s. Uh, well, Getty, for example, the first time I worked with him on Power Windows, we were working at Richard Branson's studio in England, and every they brought their whole, their entire... Just that. Richard, you were at Richard Branson's studio in England. It's just such Yeah, a in, in Oxford, thing. it was a, um, a big, big old sort of medieval manor with an right. incredible studio. Um, and... Russia brought their entire crew over, not, not the, the live crew, but all their roadies, techie, techie people. Right. And uh, Getty was playing bass, and we suggested that I saw, either myself or the engineer suggested that he changed strings because he had fairly old strings on. And so we asked the, the roadie, whose name was Jimmy Johnson, I'll never forget it, to change the strings. Which he duly Not did. Not to be confused with the bass player Jimmy Johnson, who is a no. well-known bass player, right? Okay. No. So Jimmy changed the strings, and then we decided to put the old strings back on. But unfortunately, Jimmy had cut the old strings off. Uh... And this was the first time I'd worked with Rush, and the first time they'd worked with me. And Getty was pretty annoyed, <laughs> and so. <laughs> The old strings were put up on the wall of the control room where, with a, a, a label underneath, Jimmy Johnson, this is your life. Oh, <laughs> that's cold. I, as, as a bass player, especially growing up, and, you know, bass strings are not cheap. That was one thing I would always save my bass strings. I would, I would never cut them because they were just too expensive. And you could actually boil your strings if you wanted to. Have I remember that. I, yeah, I remember like we would yeah. you know, get a, get an old set and boil them, clean them off, and you could reuse them. Uh, yeah. But yeah, a roadie I mean, is going to clip them off because he's mostly thinking live. Yeah, and he's know? trying to stay quick, yeah. right? He wants to save yeah. time for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd have to think a bit more. Um, Alex seems like a funny guy. Yeah, he would always, uh, if, if um, Alex had a bit too much to drink, Big Al would come out. Big Al, so that was his, al Al. his alternate personality? Yeah, his that alternate. was his alternate personality. It was completely different to <laughs> the normal Alex Lifeson. He became this sort of over-the-top guy. Just extremely funny and crude and loud. <laughs> we all, you know, both uh, Getty and Neil and myself, we'd all just fall about laughing whenever Big Al came out. Excellent. And he didn't interfere with the with the studio stuff. He he came out. No. Big Al came out at the appropriate times. At the appropriate times after yeah. the recording was done. Yeah, excellent. And he he was extremely funny, and he he was a an artist as well. And uh, he would, you know, my house, you may have seen cartoons that he drew of 
us all in the studio and the various characters. Oh, cool. oh really? One, one of the uh, the great pictures, which I wish I had, was this picture of uh, a cowboy with his eyes uh, almost crossed, and it was entitled "Sitting on a Cactus." <laughs> he just comes up with that stuff like while you're in the studio yeah. he just sort of drawing why you know yeah he was extremely funny and uh dry but he does uh, seem like uh a very you know, like even just in tours just you can get the impression that he's the the joker of the group yeah he, he would crack neil and getty up all the time yeah you know he, right it was just a wonderful dynamic between the three of them they were like brothers and it seemed like it yeah. It was wonderful. I mean, they stayed together for 40 years. Yep. Well, actually, right. slightly longer, but they did the R40 tour. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's a miracle in itself. I feel like, um, you know, if you can find good friends and good buddies and good bandmates, you stay with it. Yeah, it was remarkable. It was just lovely being in their presence with that that feeling. Um, never, I've never experienced that before with any bands. Oh, that's cool. That's neat to hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can hear always, it in their music. Okay. Yeah, there's always, you know, tensions and dynamics and weirdness in bands that I've worked with, and they never have really stayed together. But right. Rush. It's a hard thing to do. I mean, it really is. I mean, yeah. just in my experience, people grow, they change, you know, yes. your your opinions change, your tastes change, and all that kind of thing. And uh, trying to stay, keep that, and like, especially you, you you hear about these, like Metallica, of course, is is a well-known, or the Eagles are the good examples of bands that, you know, had some very uh, public uh, disagreements and had to fight to keep it together, right? Yeah. They're yeah. different people. They're, they become different people, right? They weren't the, the teenagers that they were when they got together. And then they're 40 years later, they start trying to keep that same uh, energy and, and, you know, it just ain't there. Yeah, uh, it was that was never an issue with Rush. They just always enjoyed being with each other, and it was, uh, uh, as you say, reflected in their music and mm -hmm. uh, their performances on stage. So, yeah. one last question: We're running. Uh, I don't want to take anybody's time too much, but I did uh, sent you. Uh, I, I sent you in that that pre-interview uh, thing. I asked you about AI and this new Beatles song that's coming out that that ai is going to actually be john's john's voice essentially uh did I, you end I, up, what's your opinion I, I looked it up i mean i have obviously haven't heard nobody's heard it but right. I, I didn't particularly care for free as a bird you know which jeff lynn i remember that right put that all together you know i grew up with the beatles waiting for the next record to come out and uh you know just was there when they evolved through their, their journey and I was there every step of the way. So all this is just kind of a desperate, to me, a desperate kind of novelty thing that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, it's uh, the fact that Not, they're desperate, the wrong word, but I hear you. They're calling it the last Beatles song, right? That's, you know, yeah. they're already kind of uh, selling it as that. I wish what they would have asked Julian to sing on it instead of done an AI because he is a, he has a nice little like career and he sounds very similar. So yeah, yeah, but it's the AI thing. I think that's it's the intention, the AI right? thing. And, and 
Do you have any, con uh, so it blows my mind thinking about what AI will do when it comes to music and, and just- I I'm terrified of AI. I, I'm terrified what it's gonna do to the world moving forward, not just in music, but in every right. scope. It's gonna take yeah. away jobs. It's gonna take away creative, human creativity. Totally. Yeah, that's my concern. Again, you're already seeing it with music, uh, just the, the ease of creating things now, there's no challenge. And I think that's part of, again, back to your experience when you were in the studio in the seventies, the work that you had to put in to make a certain sound, there's value to that. And there, you can hear it in, you can hear the work in the sound. Whereas I think a lot of times with AI, it's just gonna be this, it, the, the value of, of effort in art is gonna get lost. Yeah, for example, as you say, in the seventies, we would sit around in the control room holding pencils and tape would be going around the, the whole control and we'd all be holding pencils to create a flanging phasing effect. So, you know, <laughs> now right. you just press the button on a machine and it yeah, happens. And you, exactly. And there's a technological knowledge that needs to be there that you don't, or that you don't have if you're just doing it the, all digitally. You're not, there's no, you're not there's working no human from any creativity kind of, in it. Right, right. You look, I see, Rebecca, you look, I see your wheels turning. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm an, obviously a nerd when it comes to creating sound and altering sound. So the fact that you're using pencils and tapes, <laughs> like, <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> I'd love to see that. I would love to play in that room for a bit. It's <laughs> a much more communal still can thing. Be done. Yeah, oh, you can still do it. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh, and it does oh, seem it's more of a group, it's more of a group thing too, right? You know, that's so much of music. And this is something I've heard other people talk about is everyone, I'll speak for myself. I've got my, I've got logic on my computer. I sit alone in my room. I can play the bass. I can play the piano. I can, you know, they have great drum parts. I can have all that stuff done, but it's all me. There's no one, there's no, uh, collaboration Human. happening and there's yeah and there's a there's a beauty and there's a strength and a beauty that comes from the collaboration that used to be more necessary compared to now where we can all just sit alone and just look at our computers <laughs> and make our thing uh it's great in that we each have that ability i'm it's it's really nice that i can just sit get home from work and start recording on my computer what a wonderful thing but at the same time the the communal aspect of it is has gotten lost and the more direct mm -hmm. tangible connection to it has gotten lost i think and the, the notion of people sitting around in the studio hitting things yeah. playing things physically and looking at each other and hearing what they're playing and playing off what they're they're doing that to me is so important in music and it, it is being lost you can hear that in the in the recording right you can hear that yeah. vitality yeah. and that energy in the recording that way yes that's on the professional side of things, too. I mean, when we talk about AI and what consumers have access to, you know, by themselves now, um, I had a musician call the office the other day for impressions, and they're like, well, I can just do it by myself at home. And I'm like, good luck with that. I'll see you when you're done. You know, I think it is just um, starting to become an issue where people have the DIY type of mindset in areas where you, you're right. You prop, you can go online and do a hearing test and order hearing aids off that or get a baseline on that. But where's the partnership in that? And yes. where is the support of having a relationship experience. with someone who can help Absolutely, you at, help Rebecca. educate you throughout it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm never going to bash someone or punish someone for making a financial decision, um, you know, because sometimes it is cheaper and easier um, to go do something remotely. Right. Um, but when we're talking about certain aspects, I mean, you know, it, it's not the same as talking about going in, recording a song together, but there is a, a level of teamwork that is missing. If you, if you're not surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded and who are going to help support you on that journey. So I completely agree trust. with you. Yeah. The, the, working with an, a person, an audiologist is hugely important mm -hmm. to yeah. get that feedback, to get somebody who's really paying attention to your needs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's hugely important. Yeah. The experience. The human touch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. We might not speak the same language, but we'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's the bridge. That's the only way to. That's the only yeah. way it happens if you start making that bridge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter, do you have any final questions for either one of us? Do you have anything? Uh, no, any I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think we did too, and I really mm -hmm. appreciate your time. I feel uh, uh, I can't thank you enough. I feel very lucky. I I consider you a great friend. I um, consider I, you a great friend, Chris. Um, I'm uh, honored to know you and, and I enjoy all the time we spend together. The feeling is completely mutual. <laughs> and the same with Dr. Rebecca Grome. I can't thank you enough, obviously, for all your help in music and, and for just helping us sort of grow this thing known as the Tinnitus Manifesto. Do you have any questions? Do you have any last uh, comments, anything? No, I, I'm going to go home for the weekend and listen to Rush. <laughs> i'm gonna dust off some vinyls and i'm gonna yeah. listen to rush <laughs> everybody Wonderful. should do that everybody and should. dr rebecca i i thank you for helping chris uh as, you know chris is my dear friend and to see him his hearing improve so much has been a wonderful thing oh yeah. thank you yeah it's yeah. definitely a journey and you know there's some things that work and some things that don't work and we're still working on things but um I, I think it's i think it's great also to hear that you have found success in your hearing journey as well. And that things, um, you know, you had some support to navigate through that. So, I mean, I'm sure it sounds different and it's a, a change, but, um, you know, it's great that you're participating in this and telling your story because there's a lot of musicians out there and people in general out there who I think are just scared. So mm -hmm. yeah, thanks for sharing your story with us as well. My, yeah. my pleasure. And yeah. they're scared. Uh, and they're missing out. That fear is making them miss out, right? Yep. And that's, uh, you know, you, you realize when you get a setup how much you've been missing sometimes, those frequencies yeah. that you didn't know. Uh, get on the program, y'all. Did I sound southern? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone in this podcast is southern, so. <laughs> stick with the production. Uh, okay. Stay out of the acting. <laughs> So that's it for this episode of the Tinnitus Manifesto podcast. This is just the beginning of our exploration into all things music and hearing. Uh, one of the beauties of doing a podcast about musicians and hearing is that we can edit sounds in the podcast to give you actual audio examples of the topics we discuss. I bring this up because over the next few episodes, me and Dr. Rebecca Grome will be talking about the physics of sound. We'll get into the basic elements of what we perceive of as sound and music, specifically the big four, vibration, frequency, harmonics, and volume. So check out what's next. 
By the time you hear this podcast, we hope to have the website up at thetinnitusmanifesto.com and to be connected to social media. As of right now, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and if you have any questions, comments, or ideas, you can reach us at thetinnitusmanifesto at gmail.com. That's it for this episode. Thanks, everybody, and don't burn those high cochlear hairs.